0: He has what must be a reference to the Wizard of Oz, and he kind of goes, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there.
1: Script podcast listeners, welcome back to No Script, the podcast and unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are, a full month into our themed month of this season. That's right, it's exciting. We've had
0: three really good conversations so far on plays with supernatural elements. We've talked about Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. We've talked about Craig Lucas's play Prelude to a Kiss. We've talked about the famous Sondheim, Into the Woods. And now we are coming to an incredibly impactful, important, powerful, uh, there's almost no way to overstate the impact right. that this play has in the culture of American theater. It, it, you know, all the almost all the way to the end of season three. Now we are finally visiting Tony Kushner's amazing play, "Angels in America," subtitle "A Gay Fantasia on National Themes."
1: Yes, and we'll be doing both plays today, both part one, Millennium Approaches, and part two. I should have practiced this word before we started the podcast, peristoica. <laughs> peristoica, you got it. <laughs> yes. First try. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we'll be doing both of those plays today, so buckle in. We're going to jump into them in just a minute.
0: That's right. Before we continue on with our conversation, we do want to ask all of you who are No Script listeners to please consider heading on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can become a supporter of our show. A month supporter. There's a couple different donation levels there. You could choose a dollar a month and then it kind of goes up from there. If you become a supporter, the first thing that you're going to do is support our work, obviously. And that is hugely important to us. What we do, we love to do, but it's not free to do. And we'd love some help from our NoScript community in being able to afford this work, which we're so passionate about. The other thing that you get access to is our patron-only posts that are occurring over on uh, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. For those of you who've already done that A huge thank you. Your support means so much to us. We're so excited that you're listeners and you believe in the project. So we're thrilled. I hope that you're enjoying the Patreon, patron-only posts over there. But for everybody else, please head over there right now. For a dollar a month, you can support our work. One dollar a month. I believe you can do that.
1: <laughs> and thank you yes to echo that thank you to all who have already done that headed over there you make the uh the possibility and the very likelihood of this podcast continuing for many more seasons all that more tangible so thank you all so much for the rest of you we will see you over there at no script podcast <laughs> patreon.com slash podcast
0: now back to the script
1: Yes, back to the script. We're going to contextualize it just a little bit, and this play, as Jacob already mentioned, has such wide-sweeping effect on the theatrical community and on just uh, American culture in general at the close of the previous millennium. So I'm going to do my best here. That's right.
0: Really one of the themes of our conversation probably will be that we can't get to everything. We're covering two (laughs) plays, really one play, two parts today. And that same is going to be true for even just the context of this play, which is (laughs) so full. We could just never say all of the important productions unless we wanted to spend the whole hour doing it.
1: Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, this conversation is going to be like a rock skipping over deep water. We're going to hit like in, like things that stick out to us, but this play has so much depth and so much impact. So bear with us as we do this. But this play opened, uh, I believe it opened uh, kind of uh, as a... Uh, as a test project in 1990, but it premiered in 1991 and that was just the, uh, millennium approaches section of the play. Uh, in 1992, Perestroika was, Stryka was produced and, uh, then they were released together as, as a set in 1993 and r- ran in repertory with each other. And that was on Broadway. So that was the kind of the o- official release of that time. Uh, the, uh, That production uh, took place at the Walter Kerr Theater and was directed by George C. Wolfe. And uh, yeah, that that production won a a bunch of awards. The play itself uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The play won the Tony Award for Best Play and the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Play. So this is a a highly lauded play that then went on to have many more productions. Later that year, it received its uh, London production, or I'm sorry, the previous year opening of it was in 1992. And then there was a Dusseldorf, it was in Dusseldorf as well in 1992. And there's a number of recent productions of it, uh, as recent as the one I'm looking at is 2008 or, yeah, 2018 at the Royal National Theater. There is, of course, the also the film adaptation, which is an HBO miniseries, and that was produced in 2003. There's an opera as well that was produced in Paris, France. So it's it's been revisited a lot. So uh, all over the globe, people have have uh, adhered to this play because I think it had such an important cultural uh, through line for, for many places around the world.
0: And just some incredible roles and, and the names oh, yeah. that are associated with this play is another deep well that we could only barely skim the surface of. Famous actors from a long time, you know, that in their younger days, people like Jason Isaacs was in early productions of this play. That 2017 run at the Royal National that then transferred to Broadway in 2018, that had people like Andrew Garfield and Nathan Lane in it. The HBO miniseries had people like like Al Pacino, Meryl Streep, Patrick Wilson. And then the other person that was in that HBO miniseries film, which is a just regular occurrence name here on No Script Podcast is Mary Louise Parker. She was (laughs) in that HBO miniseries as she's been in so many of the scripts that we've talked about. So that's fun to see her name come up again. The plot of... Angels in America. Again, this is a two-part play. I, I, my understanding is that the plays can be performed separately. And in fact, they were in some of their original uh, imaginings. I, I would say probably most often nowadays, both plays are performed together or kind of in rep. Um, and the plot really follows from the beginning of part one, Millennium Approaches, all the way through the end of part two, Perestroika. They're, they're, the, the plot ties together Across the two plays, it's not like they take place at separate times or anything like that. The plot follows one to the other. It is mainly about two couples during the 80s. Um, The first couple is Pryor and Lewis. Pryor and Lewis are—Pryor um, has AIDS. He's—one he's, he's one of the things that goes on in, in over the course of the play and one of the broader social connections is this is kind of in the middle of the AIDS crisis. And so lots of gay men at the time uh, are suffering from AIDS and, and it, they're kind of newly discovering what it means to have AIDS and how to treat AIDS and what it means that many of our friends are dying by AIDS. And so Pryor, from the beginning of the play, has AIDS and is starting to get fairly sick because of it. Obviously, his immune system is destroyed, so he's catching all kinds of different things. And Lewis, his partner, is not able to handle the physical caretaking for Pryor. The the grossness of it, the blood, and the uh, you know the crap and, and all of it, uh, the vomit, just kind of drives him away. So he leaves Pryor and kind of they, he abandons him one night when Pryor's really bad in a hospital and so some of the play follows them and and their separation and they're coming back together potentially um The other couple is Joe and Harper. Joe and Harper are Mormons who've moved to New York City, where the play takes place from Utah, from Salt Lake. Joe is a clerk for a justice in New York City, and uh, apparently he's a a pretty important clerk because his justice uh, doesn't really write his own opinions. In fact, he's accused of being an idiot several times, and Joe basically does the writing for him, so a pretty important clerk, and... Joe's wife, Harper, suffers from, you know, incredible anxiety, depression. She's addicted to pills. And so their marriage is tense for that reason, in that it's tough for Harper to spend all of her days alone. They're in this new place. So she's experiencing delusions and things like that, partly because of the pills. Joe also is secretly within himself a gay man. And what he discovers kind of about halfway through Millennium Approaches is that Har- Harper accuses him of being a gay man and they kind of they kind of separate for a while. This is where those two couples come together. Joe and Lewis end up together for a short while and then their respective relationships are impacted because of that. Um, that kind of travels through a lot of the, the relationship part of the play. Separate from those two couples is a real person named Roy Cohn, who appears as a character in the play, a really tough, uh, uh, pretty immoral, lambasted lawyer in this play, uh, Roy Cohn, who's also a gay man, although he would not say that he is. Um, He also has AIDS, and across the course of the play, he's dying of AIDS. So those are the main character groups. There's lots of other characters that we'll talk about that's kind of what goes on just at the human level. The reason the play is called Angels in America and the reason why we're doing it in Magic Month, uh, with plays about supernatural elements, is that Pryor is being visited again, Pryor is the person who begins the play as the partner to Lewis, has AIDS is dying of AIDS over the course of the play Pryor is visited by angels, um, the continental principality angel of America and uh, (laughs) the angels are concerned that Humanity has had so much movement and migration and motion and progress that apparently it has driven God away. And so they have sent, in the form of Prior a prophet to try to tell humankind to come to stasis, to stop moving, so that potentially God will return. I think that covers at least at the most broad scope.
1: Yeah, what goes on in this play? Yep, that that I, I agree. Well done. That was a big big broad stroke of what all happens and uh, yeah, how to how to dive into it now. We'll we'll kind of like jump around a whole bunch. Part of it I think is yeah. What do you what do you what's a good like jump off point for well, this play? I, I
0: think we got to hedge again first. Hedge it's so important again. to hedge again, which <laughs> is to say, there's so much to talk about i listened to an interview with tony kushner and he talked for an hour about things that we're just never going to be able to get to i mean this was the playwright you know we (laughs) will only be able to cover so much there's so much in this play this might be a play that sometime in the future we may have to revisit and have a different more in-depth conversation about different stuff so whatever we get to in this open unscripted conversation is just what (laughs) we get to and i'm sorry about the stuff that we miss (laughs)
1: But jumping in, let's maybe, let's maybe as a way of trying to guide us through it, let's, let's examine these relationships a little bit. Both of them, so, so the two, the two pairs are, again, uh, Lewis and Pryor, and then Joseph and Harper. Joe is probably what we'll end up calling Joseph, that's what he's called through most of the play, um, they're in New York. They're they all for various reasons are breaking up and and I like what you had to say about uh Lewis's leaving of Pryor. That's kind of the big one of the big uh tough things early on in the play. I think it's in the first like maybe 40 pages of the play, is Lewis uh engages with uh Pryor's illness. He has AIDS and he just he can't stick around, both because uh, I think I think he's just scared, but also because there's there's an emotional element as well. He he has this um at least, at least, Pryor accuses him of of not being able to be there emotionally when it gets hard beyond the kind of scariness of the disease.
0: Right. Yeah. At one point, I think I forget who Pryor is talking to, but they talk about how. Lewis is the kind of person that tortures himself over everything. Every little emotional turbulence causes him a tremendous amount of stress and agitation. And so prior, and it might be Belize that he's talking to at this point, say that, you know, if you're a person that gets so agitated and has such a hard time holding on even through the small bumps, when enormous life, literally life ending moments come about, you're going to have a real hard time suffering through. And Lewis has a Real hard time suffering through. I like that you mentioned the emotional aspect too. Lewis has a hard time suffering through the idea of watching prior, the person he loves or claims to love, die.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's and it's not like over and over throughout the play, he it's he does not say that he is not in love with Pryor anymore. He is not, he is not grappling with like, oh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be together anymore. It's like I, I can't be this close. And obviously, despite all of his protestations, that doesn't land well with Pryor. <laughs> like, what Pryor needs in that time is someone to be present and someone he loves to be present with him. But but Lewis just can't do it, despite the fact that he still loves Pryor and has feelings for him.
0: Yeah, one of the themes that occurs throughout the play that, that this is a good time to bring it in, I think, because of how it manifests in their relationship, is this idea between the the disconnect between theory and reality. These characters have theoretical, philosophical conversations throughout the play. One of the things Tony Kushner has done so brilliantly is provided real stakes to high-level philosophical conversations for his characters. And one of the conversations that is had is Lewis trying to defend this decision to leave Pryor. And he says, you know, you can still be in love with someone and fail them. And Pryor says something that I think is is brilliantly painful and, and so human. He says, yes, some people can. Theoretically, you can, <laughs> you can love someone and fail them. In general, the royal you can leave— can love someone and fail them, but you, Lewis, can't. You mm. can't do it. And I I love that, not because I think it's right or anything. I'm not sure I agree with Pryor in that moment, <laughs> his interpretation of Lewis, but because of the pain that Pryor shows at that moment, his inability to allow what he knows is true cognitively, that it, it is possible for Lewis to love him and still have the inability to be around him during this time. He knows that cognitively, but the pain is forced to say, but what I know to be possible cognitively can't be true for you because of the pain and heartbreak I'm experiencing at this moment.
1: Hmm, yeah, yeah, that that kind of... Inability to synthesize those two things is is pretty ripe within these characters, and it's ripe within the uh, the relationship between t- Joe and Harper too. Like they they there's there's that same care. Joe clearly cares about Harper, um, but but the it manifests in in his lack of care for her, or or many of his actions seem to uh, say the opposite. He leaves her um, <laughs> after she's missing. Basically, she like goes missing, and he goes off. And has a relationship with Lewis but then at the end of the play he tries to re- he he too like Lewis towards the end of the play tries to redeem it he tries to go back and take care of Harper and and again it's kind of too late
0: yeah Joe's journey is he you know he he claims and other people say this of him too to be this really really decent person just sort of trying to do what's best and do his duty. And so knowing that he was gay, he tells Harper and the audience at that point that he knew he was gay when he married Harper, but he's lived all this time trying to make it work. And and at one point when Harper comes to him with the, I think you're gay uh, moment, that confrontation finally, Joe says something along the lines of, what does it matter what I am? It really matters what I do. I have stuffed down this part of myself, and I've done what I know to be right, been a decent person, made correct moral decisions, been there for you, even though that part of our marriage, that sexual desire, isn't there.
1: Which is an interesting paradox for that character, because one of the biggest accusations against Joe is made by Lewis, and it's on the basis of what he did. Um, as, as a clerk for Roy, he basically wrote uh, briefs. Just real quick,
0: uh, uh, Joe was not a clerk for Roy. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Joe is a clerk for, I think the character's name is Judge Wilson. Roy is just like another
1: lawyer A friend, a mentor, thank you, yeah. As, as a clerk, though, he wrote basically the, the, the judge's decision against a pretty prominent, uh, Oh, what was there? Were there were two cases that are mentioned. Well, One there are is lots uh,
0: of cases. Lewis, <laughs> yeah. this is uh, at the end of Lewis and Joe relationships were quite a ways into Paris. Yeah, we're jumping all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Lewis has discovered that Joe. Now he's known all along that Joe was a, a gay Republican Mormon, and Lewis is a very secular liberal Jew and has a lot of problems <laughs> with Joe's <laughs> politics and view of the world, but loves <laughs> the inner person, I guess. But mm-hmm. due to Belize's friendship with prior. uh, They've kind of conspired to figure some stuff out about Joe and brought it to Lewis. And so Lewis discovers that Joe was the person writing these prominent powerful anti civil, basically civil rights Uh, uh, law opinions uh, decisions by a judge. Uh, A couple, the two that he actually names amidst the whole pile that he finds terrible are he found against some kids who were uh, suffering eye trouble uh, as a result of a company like poisoning the water. Mm -hmm. And then more painful and personal, apparently uh, Joe wrote an opinion where uh, a man who was kicked out of the army for being gay, he was still going to receive his pension, but he changed the decision to be that he only received his pension because the army knew all along that he was gay and not because gay people are a protected government group. So he removed right. the like government protection precedence part of establishing protection for that group of people under the law mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So
1: so in that way like his his actions I think he has some sh- at least in that scene he he defends those actions a little bit but he has some shame around them. So I wonder if I I think I think you use the two words I'm going to try to make a distinction between them instead of I think moral is what he is. He has a moral compass that he is trying to adhere to. I think what the other characters call into question is whether he's a decent person or not beneath those morals. And that's where some of his actions, both to Harper and uh, the ones that Lewis dredges up, come into question a little bit more.
0: That's interesting. I might flip those words if I decided to be real piggy. I think maybe he is <laughs> definitely a decent person. Whether or not he's truly a moral person might be mm. the question of the play, but that maybe is splitting hand. Right, right. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I find so interesting about these two couples is that the centerpiece of the plot around the couples themselves in both couples is this abandonment moment. Joe abandoning Harper, Lewis abandoning Pryor, and Joe and Lewis coming together. And Pryor and Harper have this weird supernatural connection. In a, you know, like many plays in which there are supernatural elements, um, not like the ones we discussed this month where there's like real quote-unquote supernatural things happening, but in lots of plays there's sort of a question about whether supernatural things are just a result of dreams, you know, and and some of that could be true for this play. Is Prior really seeing angels, or is he just in a drug-induced hallucinatory state? Right. And that's maybe one of the one of the question marks. I I don't. I, I have an opinion. I'm not sure it matters super what my opinion is about that. But one of the unexplainable phenomena, if that was your particular position, is that Prior and Harper meet in Dreamland before their respective partners have left them and come together, so that their might be some way for them to know each other they don't know each other at all but they meet in this hallucinatory dreamland and they know things about each other that it would be impossible to know
1: yep and just in case you're you're wondering well maybe this is like we're watching a subjective view from one or the other they then meet in in the material world as well the not dream world they meet by happenstance and like uh, say say you seem really familiar for some reason <laughs>
0: So they have this metaphysical connection as the abandoned partners and that metaphysical connection has established itself even before they're abandoned, which is uh, sort of interesting, I think.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you brought that. I'm I'm glad you brought that part of it up because I think that is the one the one bit of evidence that makes me firmly on the side that magic actually exists in this play. Um be, because a lot of this play, I think you're you're right in bringing up the 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 this could be a delusion. Um a, a lot of it is centered around prior other characters kind of interact with it every once in a while, but often they will explain it away by I had this craziest dream. So, so you wonder if maybe it's just Prior justifying a lot of stuff, um, and and it could very well be that. And, and Belize
0: some- actually makes that point too, right? Is that a lot of Prior's experience with this angels is the angels dealing with dealing with abandonment issues, is how Belize puts it, because <laughs> God has abandoned the angels, and of course mm-hmm. during this hallucinatory time, Prior is experiencing abandonment of Lewis. So Belize right. makes that possible accusation connection for us that look there's a
1: I think even says like there's a theme here right yeah (laughs) and the play kind of echoes that too in its casting the play intentionally uses double casting with the angels and the ghost characters of real people so you have or or not real people but casted characters in the play people that Pryor would interact with the other person who interacts with ghosts a lot is Roy Roy Cohen but we'll get to him in a minute uh, the angels are other characters. The main angel he interacts with plays the nurse that helps. Uh, that prior. Uh, interacts with all the time.
0: Yeah, the, obviously, so. like the life-saving nurse, the mm-hmm. bring healing to his broken body nurse. So, making her into a hallucinatory angel is not the biggest leap in the world.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. The council of angels is all of his friends. <laughs> so. So yeah, or or and, enemies. There is but. an
0: important. Probably note to put on that if you've not read or experienced the play before. I, d- I don't think we're meant to assume that the char- when there's double casting that those original characters playing figments of people's imaginations. They're separate characters entirely with no connection that are intentionally double cast to say something to the audience. That is not something I don't believe the characters notice. There's no mm-hmm. moment where uh a prior is like you look just like the nurse from the hospital. And <laughs> right. that's just for the audience.
1: Yeah. Or vice versa. I don't I am I'd have to read it again just to be sure, but there's no moment where uh prior will say, You seem like an angel or something like that to the nurse. Right. <laughs> like and, it doesn't and go. Pryor the other doesn't way. go
0: up before the council of angels in Perestroika and say, You're just you're all my friends Right. <laughs> Although he I I don't know. Actually, he kind of does. Whoa, when he wakes whoa. up from the Council of Angels, he has what must be a reference to the Wizard of Oz, and he kind of right. goes, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. So I stand corrected. <laughs> Pryor does, in fact, notice that the Council of Angels is made up of the people around him.
1: Mm-hmm. So so uh, at any rate, the question is there for us as an audience to interact with, right? Is this delusion? Is this something uh, that is just subjective and or And does not? it
0: matter? I right. Mean, ultimately, does it matter if this is a delusion or if Pryor's really interacting with angels? I'm not sure it does. Um,
1: yeah, probably not.
0: But. Probably another moment where the supernatural realm of ghosts and angels and whatever else that exists in this world uh, interacts very strongly and almost unexplainably with the real world. Is near the very end of millennium approaches. Uh, Roy Cohn, uh, the Roy Cohn's connection to all the other characters is that his he his mentee basically Joe uh, is. is He's trying to—Roy's con- trying to convince Joe to go to Washington and work in the Justice Department because Roy's potentially going to get disbarred and he needs a friend at Justice, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, at the end of Millennium Approaches, Joe has come to Roy to t- at his home to say, one more time, I'm sorry, I can't go. They get in a fight. Roy's very sick by this point. So by the time Joe leaves, Roy has sort of collapsed over on the ground. And as he's in all this sort of suffering, collapsed pain— Ethel comes in through the door. And Mm -hmm. Ethel is a ghost of this woman that as a lawyer, Roy basically, I mean, he definitely cheated, broke the law as a lawyer to get her put in the chair. She was executed because of him. She visits him as he's collapsed and, and rolling in the ground, and then she stays with him for much of the rest of the play. But notably, in that scene, she calls the ambulance. She mm-hmm. has conversations with the 911 operator and says, my name is Ethel. No, I'm just an old friend. Now, we don't see the 911 operator side of that, so this could all be a delusion of Roy's, and maybe really he did dial 911, but he seems to be collapsed on the floor pretty well, so how the ambulance got there if Ethel the ghost didn't call 911 is a little bit of a question mark.
1: Definitely. Yeah, that that Ethel's interaction in general with with the world seems to be uh, one of the other one of the other big wonderings that 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 maybe there is something magical happening around here but it's still wonderings like you still because because it's all subjective because we don't have the 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 other side of the conversation the option is open for a delusionary experience which I think is an important facet of of the experience of people who were fighting AIDS at the time and I'm I'm a, I'm a my own personal experience does not include this so it's it's a little outside of my box but that's part of the confusion aspect of this play that I think Kushner is starting or trying to deal with is as, as they're fighting this illness, as they're taking more drugs, the, the lines begin to blur a little bit more.
0: Absolutely, that is definitely happening in the play. I want to shift gears just a little bit, Jackson, and read you just a little bit of a monologue from the beginning of the play. And I, I kind of want to see what you think about this line and its relationship to the rest of the play. It only struck me as I had read through the play a couple of times maybe how crucial this line is. See what you think about it. So this is the, the very first scene of the play. A An old Jewish rabbi is giving a funeral eulogy for this old, old woman who he didn't really know. And he's describing how she was one of the uh, immigrants, Jewish immigrants, who crossed from Europe and Eastern Europe and Russia to America to make a life for themselves. And how he's trying to kind of honor that part of her life and how so many of those people are dying off. And this is what the rabbi says. You can never make that crossing that she made, for such great voyages in this world do not anymore exist. But every day of your lives, the miles that voyage between that place and this one you cross. Every day, you understand me? In you that journey is.
1: That line in general, like struck me, it's right at the beginning of the play. Like you said, it struck me as such like a poignant uh commentary on on the world <laughs> and 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 what humans have left to physically do. I think this play maybe talks about what is left um. Uh, maybe metaphysically, to do as humans.
0: Yeah, and it, it was so striking to me because the request of the angels, the prophecy that Pryor is sent to bring to the world, the, the supernatural interaction or complaint of the angels is, you have to stop moving and migrating and, and growing and progressing. And this rabbi, at the very beginning getting of the play, says that great migration from the old land to a brand new world doesn't much exist in the world anymore. There are very mm. few brand new worlds for people to uncover. You know, if, if I if I moved or migrated to a country that was wholly unfamiliar to me, I might have some of that experience, but not in the same way that waves of these communities were transported to another place. And so the mm-hmm. rabbi makes the case that that part that time in our history is over but there is a sort of journey from the old world to the new world inside of a human life
1: yeah and inside of human human interaction as well the 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 ability to uh you know the I think I think Joe is an excellent example of this. Joe crosses into a completely new human experience from the beginning of this play to the end of this play, and and it's not it's not a physical journey, right? But it is an emotional one. It's one that's tied to his his you know moral compass and his character and what he is open to. So so I think that journey is is. Uh, s- I think what this play does is expose the ability of that journey to exist in some other capacity than just a physical transplantation.
0: Right. And, and, and so this is what I think is maybe so gripping about the play is these this whole spectrum of humanity, goes on these incredible leaping emotional journeys from one place within themselves and their relationship to the world to another. It reminds me, there's a novel that I read recently called Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ning, and there's not a lot of relationship between the two stories in terms of plot. But one of the features of this novel, Little Fires Everywhere, is it has this incredible omnipotence. I said that wrong again. I did that in the previous episode too. I don't know what that's about. An um, Omnipotence. It has a, the, the the narration is incredibly omnipotent. And so you see each character and there's a whole spectrum of them. Even minor characters, you live through their eyes for a while. And then for sometimes random reasons, sometimes just because they pass on the street, you live in another character's eyes for a little while. And so you see this whole wide group follow into the, uh, along the storyline. You see their lives change because of it. and well, angels in america reminds me a little bit of that omnipotent view of a whole swath of humanity going through substantial changes in their life substantially changing moments
1: yeah and and just each each time the play engages one of these little storylines it's it, the worth is so so uh prevalent in there like you occasionally uh when especially when one of these characters are being introduced or it's the first time you're spending serious time with them you're like why <laughs> this was this was at best a character that just had something to say about this other character two pages ago I'm thinking specifically of Joe's mom Hannah Pitt
0: <laughs> yeah Hannah's a great example of a character like that
1: Mm-hmm. Who, who? I think I'm a little fuzzy on exactly where these scenes fall, but she only has like one-ish scene in the first play, and then she becomes very prevalent throughout the second play. So, so you have these scenes where all of a sudden we're in Salt Lake City and she's selling a house with some a character, another character who will never meet again in the play, and 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 you're wondering why, why, why am I sitting here? But then two pages into it suddenly it starts to plumb into such such deep depths of human experience that 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 you come away from that going wow <laughs> i don't know how this scene will connect but i got some incredible worth out of that scene nonetheless
0: Yeah, and, and like, Belize is another character like that for me, too. In the first kind of times, a couple times that you meet Belize, he doesn't seem like he's going to be all that major of a character. But then, I don't know, the part grows and grows, and the story becomes more and more gripping. And by the end of Perestroika, Belize is one of the most impactful characters in the show for me.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the journey Belize goes on, Belize caretakes Roy Cohen, to to his death, um, when when until he dies, so she becomes or he becomes this this nurse who, uh, uh, yeah, is is around as one of his nemesis dies basically. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So Belize is a registered nurse at a hospital. He's a prior partner of Pryor's, but they've remained really, really good friends, I guess, even after the relationship has ended. So he's involved in Pryor's care uh, as as Pryor is suffering from all the different diseases he's got because of AIDS. And then, um, and also sort of involved in the relationship drama between Pryor and Lewis. But then the really incredible, emotional, beautiful story that Belize follows through is how he's forced to care for the foul-mouthed, cruel, racist, P.O.S., Roy (laughs) Cohn, as Roy Cohn is in his hospital dying of AIDS, Belize is the night nurse. And to watch Belize offer compassion and mercy back in the face of scorn and vile...
1: Is incredible. Mm-hmm. And not and 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 you get to kind of go on a journey with him throughout too, because it's not always uh, one of, one of the big final moments is him kind of taking heaven away from. <laughs> Roy, he describes heaven and says, "Yeah, you're not, you're not there." Uh, well, well, no. What's interesting is that
0: Belize <laughs> describes heaven as this place where all races sort of intermingle together, and it's beautiful, and and all genders intermingle together, and there's no divisions or power structures anymore. And and Roy goes, "Okay, and describe heaven to me." Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Belize goes, "That was heaven, you
1: <laughs> piece of crap. You're not there." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, stuff like that is just, it's amazing, and it comes from somebody who, in a different version of the story, could have very easily been a side character, Mm -hmm. but- uh, Tony Kushner has found plausible, incredible ways to interweave these characters into each other's lives. I mean, how how in the world should a couple like Joe and Harper ever have anything to do with people like Pryor and Lewis? It's New York City. It's an enormous space. Right, right. And, the, the... and suddenly their lives are so connected.
1: Mm-hmm. This The specificity of relationship within this play is... is uh... Baffling when you look at it from a meta narrative perspective, right? Like if you're if you're looking at it, it's like how the heck did these people, how, like I'm I'm invested in all these characters. How did they how did they find each other? Right. Here's um, the
0: most ludicrous example, and it's so ludicrous that actually the characters comment on it in a really funny way. Prior, Laiden Perestroika has collapsed because he's sort of overtaxed himself, even though he's kind of been recovering from one of his diseases, and because he's been ex- visiting, he's been being visited by angels. He's been doing some angel research, and he's gone to the Mormon Visitor Center, and at one point, he has an attack and, and collapses at the Mormon Visitor Center, and a woman from the Mormon Visitor Center takes him to the hospital and stays with him and cares for him and protects him. Now, who is the woman from the Mormon Visitor Center but Hannah, Joe's mother? <laughs> and so Pryor, upon realizing all of this, then says, this is my ex-lover's lover's mother <laughs> who is in the hospital caring for him oh. as he's suffering through this the throes of this disease. I mean, how wild is that? And yet, really, until Pryor says that, he, I, I, don't, I don't really go, oh, this is ludicrous. How would he and Hannah end up at the hospital? I'm totally on board. I'm invested in the idea that Pryor is being taken care of by his ex-lover's lover's mother.
1: Right, right. And, and even when you go back and look at it again, like when, once you have the incredulous moment of how did this happen, you go back and Kushner manages, I don't know how, through like a, a, a flow chart the size of Manhattan to justify <laughs> <laughs> to justify how it happened, right? Like uh, uh, Pryor follows Joe because he's like stalking him basically because he figured out that he's with Lewis now. And so he just happens to come inside, talk to this woman and have an episode. Episode there, and thus you know the the cause and effect when you go back works, which is shocking in a play of this many relationships all weaving together.
0: And the Mormon Visitor Center is one of those other places where the supernatural weaves grafts itself onto the world in an almost unexplainable way. Yeah, uh, they're watching this like Chuck E. Cheese robotic uh, demonstration of how. Salt Lake City was founded, basically how the Mormon religion was founded, and the 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 father character is looks like Joe apparently. So Harper's there watching this this diorama because she's suffering from losing Joe, etc. And into this diorama scene walks a metaphysical, supernatural, not a ghost because he's not dead, but like some hallucinatory version of Lewis, who right. then like. Holds hands with and suggests that they have a he has a relationship with Joe, this robotic version of Joe from the diorama, and they walk <laughs> off together. And you might say, "Well, well, Pryor's just imagining that he's having a hallucination." But then Harper goes, "Did you know that man? He comes into this diorama like every day, and it's so
1: annoying." <laughs> yep that's another one of those ones that uh, the 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 Harper and Prior shared experience um, really really has has a bunch of uh, evidence throughout the play and Harper gets the last par- like one of the last paragraphs of the play. There's an epilogue afterwards, but uh, she gets one of the like her, her last monologue is this big metaphysical monologue about how she sees souls rising from from America as she flies over it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Jackson, we've probably gone l- as long as we really can in this episode without talking politics. Okay. I mean, the play <laughs> is deeply, deeply political. I mean, oh, you yeah. know, in many ways, this is a political play, and mm-hmm. the case that it makes is a case against uh, Reaganism. And and that 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 particular brand of conservatism, and if you listen to Tony Kushner talk at all, he has a lot of deep uh, deep things to say about that particular political view, and the journey of Joe is the most obvious journey away from that particular worldview into something new. But Lewis, who's part of Joe's journey, so this makes sense, has a lot also to say about Reaganism in that particular world. And, of course, you know, in hindsight, we know that some of what was suffered upon the gay community in the form of AIDS was at least partially due to the negligence of the Reagan administration in dealing with that crisis. So, so much of this play is uh, a, a highlight of the blight upon that particular time in our history, political history.
1: Mm-hmm. and even the, the the title of the second play perestroika is is a a policy put forth by Mikhail Gorbachev uh, perestroika is I'll, I'll read off the definition so I get it right here the policy or practice of restructuring or reforming the economic and political system so, and and that's kind of what this play is calling for by the end of of this play is the 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 last monologue of prior is uh, is, is a powerful command for the community to begin moving forward out of this moment. Uh, his last lines, you are, you are fabulous creatures, each and every one, and I bless you, more life, the great work begins. It's, it's, it's a clarion call to begin moving out of this, this time frame, this, this political opinions, this, this structure of society into something new.
0: Uh, This is a quote uh, from Joe near the beginning of the play. He's talking with Harper. This is how he describes America in the middle of the Reagan administration. And some of what the play does is look at the lens of how people viewed America at that time and many different kinds of people. And this is what Joe says. America has rediscovered itself it's sacred position among nations and people aren't ashamed of that like they used to be this is a great thing the truth restored law restored that's what president reagan's done
1: hmm yeah so that that <laughs> that has some resonance um there's <laughs> there's yeah the um I think Joe will end up. I'd be interested to see another play after a play on Joe, honestly. Because I don't. That is
0: wild that you said that. Because that (laughs) is, I mean, people say that all the time. As I've done Hmm. more and more reading and research on that, that's one of the really common things people say is poor stinking Joe. (laughs) how, How does his story end?
1: Right. We've deconstructed Joe in this play. But I wonder what he builds up afterwards, after kind of all of the the pillars that he used to rest upon are ripped away. Um, what, what what does he do now? What what is his? Because he's I think he's a, a powerful character still, both in the play and in the world. So what what I would be very interested to see what Joe does with the next you know twenty years of his life. <laughs>
0: yeah, Tony Kushner self describes what he did to Joe in the play and where he left him as cruel. <laughs> and he made yeah. the comparison to a Tennessee Williams play, and actually the play itself has a lot of connections to Tennessee Williams, more mm-hmm. to Streetcar Named Desire than to The Glass Menagerie. But Tony Kushner, in talking about The Glass Menagerie, says that one of the cruelest things Tennessee Williams ever did was where he left Amanda at the end of that show.
1: Yeah. And he kind of mm-hmm. makes
0: that comparison that you know I, I also visited that kind of unfinished cruelty on Joe in this play. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it would be interesting to see because he would he would complete that narrative for us a little bit. I think everyone allies against Joe's worldview in this play, but we don't really get to see if he had any growth or 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 what his choices are based on this new information.
0: Yeah. And it you know, this for a play that is a lot about politics and a lot about how the political theory and philosophy, as we've discussed a little bit, how it interweaves itself in the real practical lives of human beings, this is also a play about angels, right. and super yep. and so that that's an odd connection. and the the pinpoint for me, came at the very end of the play actually in the epilogue scene this is a line that uh lewis says near the very very end of the play he says that's what politics is the world moving ahead and only in politics does the miraculous occur hmm Now, this is a guy who earlier in the play says the title line of the play in a conversation with Belize, he says America has no spiritual past anymore. There are no angels in America. Yeah. And then at the very final scene of the play says, in fact, only in politics does the miraculous occur. That's an interesting start and beginning, and, and maybe an interesting reason why this very political play has such supernatural connections, metaphors, imagery, characters.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It also does the good work of reclaiming kind of a social justice. Uh, way of dealing with the world, like being involved in politics is where is where the miraculous can occur or, or the only place that the miraculous can occur is is a I mean that's a pretty powerful statement of saying, you know we can't if you want if you want something <laughs> if you want angels to be around in America, if you want some sort of good to come about, be involved in politics.
0: And of course, Pryor's interaction with those angels is political, right? I mean, it, it's, yeah. the, the angels are concerned in some way with the politics of what is going on. The angels are connected. Interestingly, though, and, and uh, this is maybe, I think, one of the really bright, there's so many bright things that Tony Kushner did, but one of the really bright things in his writing of these supernatural characters. Interestingly, the angels are not, super connected with governments they're called the continental principalities because in this imagining there is an angel for basically every continent every large mm-hmm. landmass. there's an american one a south american one an australian one a european one an asian one you know so they're they're not connected there's not like an angel of the united states of america or an angel of the Ger- germany for example Right. they are there are these continental principalities they are representative of something larger than human governments
1: mm-hmm yeah which is not not to take too deep a dive but we got to get into magic a little bit that's that's very based in like a revelation style of understanding the angels and the principalities of the world like the angels for regions and uh yeah yeah and they're not they're not there to uh I think that's a good distinction. They're not there to pick a national side. They're there to kind of govern large swaths of what's going on. And they're all worried about all the different swaths of what's going on.
0: Right. And and there are major political changes that occur over the course of the play. Uh, characters follow through, uh, most notably in the epilogue. They talk about some of the major changes that are going on in Russia at the time and mm-hmm. Gorbachev and and all of what's occurring and Perestroika is where that part of the play gains its name, that thawing of the Russian politics yeah. post everything that happened. <laughs>
1: I'm going to try to wander into something in this, this, uh, this line of thought, and we'll see where I go in it. <laughs> but, so, so bear with me a little bit. But I think what's interesting about the Angels is that is their relationship to the AIDS crisis in general. Um, I think in one version of my as I was reading through this play again, in one version of what I was expecting to happen was that the angels curse the world with AIDS or something like that. Like that was going, that was going to be what he discovered in the end is that to stop things from happening, they curse the world. And, and there's this, there's this blame there. I don't think that happens. In the council scene, we see the angels reacting, uh, like almost lamenting that this is going on, that the world is in this kind of uh, disharmony.
0: And in fact, and, they they kind of imply that that has even sort of spread among the angels. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of reference to this idea that the AIDS crisis has made its way there as well. That's not totally laid out or anything like that, but they say something about that.
1: And their tactic is... Is the stasis is to stop moving all over the place, stop migrating, stop having you know these, these these new exploratory relationships all over the place. And I think that's what Pryor ends up saying no to. He says, No, I'm not going to live in this fear, I'm not going to regress us, I'm not going to uh to stay in stasis. Instead, we're going to move forward. The great work is beginning is, again, Pryor's last line. So I, I think that that relationship with the angels and the earth is interesting. And you see that in Angel, the the angel of uh, North America or whatever. She kind of has some of those lines to Pryor at the end, the kind of marvel that he's willing to uh, put aside their, their uh, <laughs> Ordain ordaining him to be the prophet of stasis and and wanting to engage in life as much as he can is a marvel to the angels, or at least to, to her.
0: Yeah, that scene ends with Pryor asking basically for more life. He's asking to be healed, to be allowed to continue his life moving forward, the exact opposite of what they've asked him to do.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting aspect. There isn't necessarily... Yes, the angels want something, or at least the the perceived angels, uh, want something that the characters don't. um, But there is... I was expecting a little bit more antagonism from the angels, and and I don't think that's necessarily there in this play.
0: Yeah, it... it the, the 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 AIDS part of the play, which is so much of what the characters suffer through the course of the show, they one of the things that Tony Kushner does is makes this connection between the AIDS crisis of the 80s and other plagues that have scourged throughout human history. Uh, one of the things that Pryor is, uh, one of the supernatural elements that he interacts with, especially before the angels come in Millennium Approaches, is he interacts with other ancestors in his line. Prior Walter is an old, old family name. He's like the 30-somethingth Prior Walter and his family. They go back ages and ages. And so he's visited by two of his ancestors. And the reason why the supernatural governance picked these two ancestors to visit him is that they too died of plague. And they, mm-hmm. there's all these connections to plague. And, in fact, in, in, in Perestroika, Pryor says something like, it's 1986, there's a plague, and half my friends are dead. Mm-hmm. And so plague as a reoccurring motif, reoccurring problem, reoccurring disaster in human history is hugely embedded throughout the play. And the angels who live through human history get to see these plagues. And, and like I mentioned, they say, we suffer with you as yeah. as as prior describes the plague
1: of aids. Mhm. Yeah, and they're working to try to try to fix it. So so as long as we're as long as we're on the angels, we have a little bit of time left and let's let's stick with magic month for the last the last little bit here. The magic in this play. There's a special. There's a special like uh, uh, end ending note on the magic of this play, and and it's it's grand throughout. Right. The there, the angel flies in. There's there's uh, supernatural stuff happening all around. What do you think that adds to this play? And also, how do we Maybe we can enter into the conversation of uh, how do we as theater artists produce it, which is an interesting conundrum, but then also how does the audience react to this magic?
0: Well, let me start that conversation by giving our listening audience a little taste of (laughs) the supernatural realities of the play. This is a stage direction from Millennium Approaches. Uh, Pryor is in a hospital room with Emily, who is one of the nurses who helps him through the earlier stages of his illness. This is the stage direction. Suddenly, there is an astonishing blaze of light. A huge chord sounded by a gigantic choir and a great book with steel pages mounted atop a molten red pillar pops up from the stage floor. The book opens. There is a large aleph inscribed on its pages which bursts into flames. Immediately, the book slams shut and disappears instantly under the floor as lights become normal again. Emily notices none of this writing. Prior is agog. (laughs) That's one example of the supernatural world that Pryor is being visited by. That does not even mention all of the various ghosts and angels and et cetera <laughs> that visit him. Yep. That's just one experience he has with actually what ends up being God. Apparently God is this Hebrew letter in some way. That, that There's not a lot of deep dive done on that. So
1: yeah, yeah. who
0: knows exactly how that connects. But <laughs> So yeah, I mean what – this is the most different – play in our magic months um, and really it, it only it, it's not so much quote-unquote magic as much as this supernatural connection none of the other plays really had such a deep religious aspect to the supernatural engagement in the earth
1: mm-hmm. yeah this this play uh this play's magic resides firmly in uh, deity produced magic um, and mythical creatures almost seems seems to be a good part of the magic as well. Um, some of it is uh, the the thru- throughout the throughout, um, prior's engagement with his prophethood, um, there's there's more instances of these like there's there's more Hebrew glyphs on the wall and that, uh, the, the Hebrew religion, in in general, uh, Judaism, seems to be prevalent throughout this play. There's there's a lot of words spoken by different characters uh, from the Hebrew religion. Part of the Shema is spoken at one point, and uh, and different sorts of blessings are said. Uh, I think, um, <laughs> shoot, what's the Eth- Ethel Rosenberg uh, sings in Hebrew at one point? So so I, yeah, she I agree. leads
0: Lewis in uh, uh, the Hebrew prayer for the dead. Over Roy Cohn, his bitter, hated, this you know, terrible human being for the gay community and for liberals in general in the 80s, uh, Lewis is brought to pray the Hebrew prayer for the dead over the dead Roy Cohn. And right. Ethel, the woman that he sent to the electric chair years ago, another Jewish person, leads Lewis in this prayer. I mean, how incredible is that? Let, mm-hmm. Just take a moment to think about that scene. yeah. The ancient executed person, this ghost, leads a total stranger. Lewis has never met. Ethel doesn't know who she is. In fact, he probably doesn't even know she's there. But she leads him in this prayer of blessing over the dead for a person they both despise. That is wild imagery. I mean, that is incredible imagery.
1: Yeah. And in the context of this play, it's not the most... um uh spectacle-based one, right? There's, there's plenty of spectacle, right? No, at one point an angel
0: tears the roof off of Pryor's apartment <laughs> and visits him—a full angel with enormous wings—and yep. then at another point Pryor goes to heaven and yep. visits the, uh, the meeting of the continental principalities of the world. Mhm which is no, you're supposed right. to not the not the same spectacle the little prayer in the hospital
1: room <laughs> but the but the gravity of it is is so much higher than I, I think I think you're right that that play or that scene in the play kind of slips away under our attention cuz like yeah of course magic happens whatever but it's incredible <laughs> um he he self-professes as not knowing the words to say like he's he has no hope of saying it he says he does not even have a bar mitzvah like he doesn't he doesn't have the words in turn to say this prayer and then somehow this this ghost feeds him the prayer and his l- last line at the end uh, uh belize says something like that was good good job he's like that was not a good job that was miraculous yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it was there was a ghost that led him in the play yeah uh, to your question what does the supernatural world do to this play that is in a lot of ways about very human things, politics and power and relationships and struggle. I think, I think it would be hard to write a play about the scope of America without some sense of the supernatural because it, do, uh, the Tony Kushner's imagining of these continental principalities, these ghosts that come in and out of people's lives, these lineages and ancestors that visit prior, these uh, connections uh, that exist in the drug-induced hallucinatory world, all of this serves to elevate the drama of these 20 people, say, into something that is about the Onward scope of the country, this larger drama that occurs about uh, about the soul of America, not just about the lives of these characters.
1: Yeah, but what Kushner does is create a new mythos for America, and and something something greater that America is living into some some connection that uh, that you know countries. Uh, it, I, th- I think this is even mentioned at some point that countries delineated by primarily race in Europe have this sort of connection. But uh but America doesn't. So what, what the Kushner does Kushner does in this play is provide that that connection to a greater story that that America is being pulled into.
0: That conversation between Lewis and Belize is so it's just, hilarious. It's so it's good. It's so funny. I mean yeah. Lewis is just going on and on about just some really racist really racist. Stuff. And and Belize is just not having it. That's that's such a great scene. And uh, uh, there's so much to talk about supernaturally, but we can't get to it all. So I'd like to end talking just about the humor of the play. Oh, yeah. Some of these characters are just so funny. And some of the jokes that are written into the play just land so well. Here's one example. Um, throughout the play, when the angel, the continental principality of America, is going to visit Prior, he gets an erection. And that's a running gag, and lots of characters comment on it, and it, it ends up being one of the reasons why he is able to tell other people about it, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so he's in the hospital room with Hannah, who, again, is his ex-lover's lover's mom, this old Mormon woman, And the angel is coming, and so he's saying, oh, the angel is on her way, and Hannah says something like, how do you know? And this is such a great line. Pryor says, (laughs) modesty forbids my explaining exactly how I know, but I have an infallible barometer of her proximity, and it's rising. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I mean, that is hilarious. Yep. (laughs) That's a great joke.
1: Absolutely. And there's there's so many more throughout this play, so many more moments that we, we could, you know, remark on and bring to the forefront, but we will leave that for the conversation that continues with you. If you have read this play, interacted with this play, been a part of it, been in a production or just watched the HBO series, we'd love to keep having this conversation with you on any of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username at noscriptpodcast. And we also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up. on any of those sites, we'd love to keep talking about this fantastic play with you.
0: Absolutely. If you liked this episode or any of our other episodes in Magic Month or beyond, please share them on your social media. Tell your friends about them. The NoScript community is one that we're just blessed to find gets bigger every time we look. And we're so excited by that. But we would love for you to help us continue to grow. So tell some folks about it. The people that you're telling about it can find our podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Or one of the easiest ways to find it is just that there's a link to the new episode posted every month. Monday on Facebook
1: this is the end of our magic month. The end has come. The we end. return to non-supernatural
0: <laughs> oh. plays. <laughs>
1: yes. So uh, you can expect that next week we'll return to our regular scheduled programming and uh, yeah, what's the what's the other big thing? We got one more kind of cool got a thing guest coming up is this coming season up. though. So we try yeah. to do a
0: guest every season and our next special guest is on their way so just look out for our uh, regular notes about what's coming up on social media and you can see when that guest episode is going to happen. That is coming pretty soon and also just keep your eye out the end of the season is not that far away yeah keep your nose to the ground and we'll let you know what the end of season plans are and when our break is scheduled to be and when we'll be back yes indeed but until next week when we're coming at you with another play i am jackson Nikolai. i am jacob Mann christensen thanks for listening to no script the podcast
1: see ya